Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're looking for real-life radio, you've come to the right place. This is The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. can follow me on Twitter at The Roy Green Show. At The Roy Green Show. Emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. This is fairly consistent of what I've seen over the last 10 minutes, 15 minutes, in the way of emails and uh, tweets from Peter. The second happiest day of my life was February 15, 1978, when I was admitted to Canada as a refugee. The happiest day was three years later when I received Canadian citizenship. I came here because I wanted to be Canadian, accepting and cherishing all the values of this society. Why is it that people are begging to be allowed into Canada, and as soon as they arrive, they start making demands and expect that this country will change and adjust to their values and expectations? Right? That is what I see frequently. That is the con- that is the response, the generic response, although that's very specific to Peter. That's why we have to talk in Canada. And on this program, we do it in English. Travis Vader was found guilty of second-degree murder and uh, in the deaths of Lyle and Marie McCann of Alberta, both in their late 70s and traveling by a motorhome, and they were towing another vehicle. And the bodies of uh, the McCanns have never been found. DNA and mobile phone evidence connecting Vader to the McCanns were circumstantial, although Vader had possession of both McCann vehicles, as well as many of their possessions. And uh, while he was a broke meth addict, he suddenly had cash to spend. Now, this week, trial judge Denny Thomas based his conviction of Vader on second-degree murder on Section 230 of Canada's Criminal Code, which the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional in 1990. This has created quite a furor. How could this happen? And what happens now, as far as Vader's concerned, David Butt is a prominent criminal lawyer in Toronto. He's an editorialist with Globe and Mail, writes op-ed pieces, and he's argued cases before the Supreme Court of Canada. Dave, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Um, is this an easy error to to make, or, 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 or should it not happen, given the fact that the Supreme Court of Canada declared Section 230 of the Criminal Code to be unconstitutional as far back as 1990. Yes, it's one of those, uh, frankly, uh, head-shaking mistakes. I mean, judges are people like the rest of us. They're not perfect. Uh, The law is difficult sometimes, and so, you know, mistakes are, are part of the landscape in our courts, and that's why we have the higher courts to fix the mistakes of the lower courts. But having said that, to try to apply a section that has essentially been a dead letter for 26 years is one of those mistakes that, uh, I'm sorry, it just leaves your head shaking. So why was Section 230 not removed from the criminal code? Wasn't this just an error potentially waiting to take place? Yes, um, certainly that makes a lot of sense. And when you sort of see it in the broader context, what happens is that there are literally hundreds, 800 uh, plus sections of the criminal code. And judges across the country are constantly um, addressing them. Some of them get struck down. Some of them remain. Some of them get struck down in one province and not in another. 
So the approach that Parliament typically takes is that once, say, every generation or so, they revamp the entire numbering system, get rid of all the old ones, and effectively clean house. But that's not something that can be done day to day just because there's so much business of reconsidering these 800-plus sections all the time. So for better or worse, there are a number of sections in the criminal code that are still there that nobody applies anymore. And Section 230 was one of them. The problem here is that everybody who sits as a judge, everybody who appears in criminal courts is expected to know as a matter of professional competence, which sections are applicable and which are not. And that's the mistake that happened here. Um, so, so what happens now, potentially, as far as a new trial is concerned, and whether a new trial would again be for second-degree murder or potentially manslaughter? What are the options? What are the, the possibilities? Sure. The, the possibilities right now are wide open. It will be up to the appeal court. Certainly there is, uh, I wasn't in the courtroom, of course, but based on the media reports, the amount of evidence pointing to uh, Mr. Vader, connecting him to what is presumed to be the deaths, because we don't have bodies, uh, is certainly strong enough to mount a murder prosecution. And so it depends on what the Court of Appeal will do. Certainly there's a possibility that they will say, look, the judge made a mistake, but basically he got it right and the murder conviction may stand. He, the court, appeal court can also say, look, he got it wrong and we have to have a new trial. And so those are, are the, the two options, but the bottom line is that any verdict still remains possible. It'll just have to be, in, likely, in all likelihood, have to be done over again. So I take it there's no chance that Vader might walk free now. I doubt that highly, extremely highly, because even if a judge makes a mistake, the appeal court looks at the evidence and says, okay, a mistake was made, we've got to do this over again. Do we just let the, the uh, um, person walk, or is there enough evidence to have a new trial? And if there is enough evidence to have a new trial, then at the very least, the appeal court will order a new trial take place. And I have no doubt that the, uh, the Crown in Alberta would rerun the trial if they had to. Let me go back to something you said a minute ago, Dave, and I think for many listeners it'll be interesting to know how a person can be found guilty of murder when nobody or bodies have been found. Yes, it's, it's a very challenging situation for the prosecution. I happen in, in my career to have been one of the few prosecutors in Canada who's successfully prosecuted a uh, murder case without a body. And what's challenging about it is that in a typical murder case you, you, where you have a body, the fact of death is very easy to establish. I mean, you've got a body. Um, and usually how that death was caused is very easy to establish. For example, you've got a pathologist who can say there were gunshot wounds or knife wounds and so on. In a no-body case, we're deprived of both of those things. There's no sort of automatic demonstrating there's a death, and there's certainly no way of demonstrating how somebody whose body we don't even have met their death. So that adds two really important layers of complexity onto a murder case, which may already be complex without those wrinkles. So we thought uh, it was over. We thought there was a second-degree murder conviction, and uh, 
and uh, the justice system would run its course, and now it's still going to run its course, but a significantly different course. Dave, thank you for the time, always. My, my pleasure, Roy. David Butt, criminal lawyer in Toronto, also op-ed writer for The Globe and Mail. We'll come back in a minute and tell you who our next guest is going to be. Stick around.